We are going to pick up in the gospel according to Mark, which we just started last week. We are in the habit of preaching through books, not just taking pa passages, you know, from here, there, or yonder. Uh, at my discretion from week to week. We do this for a lot of reasons, and one of those is I don't have to sit in my office on a Sunday morning or a Monday morning and try to figure out what I should preach on the next Sunday. It's already there kind of before me. I do have some say in what book we're going through, but we preach all the way through books. We started Mark just a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to stay in Mark until we finish it. Uh, so anyway... Actually, we just started Mark last week. We're going to be picking up with verse 12 and reading through 20. The Spirit immediately drove him, and that is Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand and uh, repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you uh, become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in, in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Just a few verses. But <laughs> there's a lot there, as there always is. Immediately. An interesting word. No time gap. Something took place immediately. Immediately the spirit impelled him. It was him, it is Jesus, and we know he spent 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, during that time, he was not entirely alone. That The evil one was there in the wilderness. Now, you and I have, uh, we know something of the temptation of the devil. We've confronted with it at times on our own. But can you imagine being tempted as he was by Satan unrelentingly for 40 days without ceasing? Now we understand that 40 days is kind of a significant thing in Scripture. You know, if you look back through Scripture, there are other things that took place for 40 days. 40 days of rain in Genesis and the days of Noah. 40 years... Uh, that Israel spent in the wilderness, and that's from Numbers chapter 14, verse 33. 
We know that the first Adam was tempted. Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden. Just, just, I want you to understand the contrast between where Adam and Eve were and where Jesus is at this point. Here you have Adam and Eve in the garden that was perfect, it was beautiful, it was gorgeous, provided absolutely everything they needed or wanted. Jesus, on the other hand, in the wilderness, a place that was devoid of many of the things that we need. Water may be available, but very difficult to find. Food, things that are edible. Living conditions are harsh. Very hot normally. Very dry normally. It's not the place that most people would go to for a spiritual retreat. Forty days. And not alone. Forty days of relenting temptation by Satan. We know that, uh, that the evil one had come and tempted Adam and Eve. That Eve gave in and, and Adam gave in. And they failed not only themselves, but they failed all of their progeny. That you and I find ourselves where we are today in part because they gave into the temptation, the testing. They failed it not just a little bit, they failed it miserably. <laughs> and just let me say this to you this morning if we were there, we would have done the same thing. Because <laughs> uh, this, this should tell us a lot of things. And one of those is this is we, we need a Savior. We need someone who can do for us what we can't do. Adam and Eve couldn't do it, you and I can't do it. We have to have a Savior. We have to have someone who stands in our place, who does for us that which we cannot do on our own. Jesus is described as being the second Adam. The first Adam failed. The second Adam did not fail. The second Adam succeeded in accomplishing what was necessary. Jesus in place is described as the high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. Because he is one who has been tempted in every respect as we have been, yet without sin. For Jesus to be our substitute, it was absolutely necessary that he experience temptation as we do. And I would say to agree, a degree even greater than we are. Because Jesus had the wherewithal to bring an end to it at any moment. He could have stopped it. Enough is enough. But he didn't do that. He ran the course. 
that the Father had set before him. It makes logical sense, reasonable sense, that a Savior for us must experience temptation as we do. But at the same time, to resist it as we don't. At least always. He is our perfect example. He is our perfect redeemer. He is our salvation. Just notice the contrast between the conditions under which Adam and Eve were tempted and Jesus is now tempted. Adam and Eve in the garden where they had a plentiful supply of everything they needed. Jesus, on the other hand, tempted in the wilderness that was virtually devoid of all the very basic things that we must have to survive. What a contrast. Does temptation still play a part for us? Most definitely. We are tempted by all kinds of things. There really is a devil, and he's all about temptation. And we know this, if it were not for Jesus standing between us and him, he could chew us up and spit us out at any moment. We have no power and authority over him. Temptation is a real part of our lives. But in Christ and through Christ, it doesn't have the stranglehold on us that it would have otherwise. If it were not for him and what he has accomplished for us, we would be giving into temptation all the time. On occasion, at least, we resist it. I hope that you can think of examples, maybe this week, where you were tempted by sin, and somehow, in some little way, maybe you resisted falling into it. But the only reason we are able to resist it at all is because of what Christ has done for us. So what are the specific temptations that you deal with? I would imagine that uh, if we were having a private conversation, you could share at least one or two of them with me. Uh, and if you couldn't, I would be praying something like, Lord, you know what? Please reveal to this person maybe some things that they need to be aware of. <laughs> 
Can you imagine this? I mean, there's a wilderness in, it, in, a, in a sense that's coming that's years ahead of this, three years later for Jesus. And what I'm talking about here is the cross. The cross is the greatest example of, of loneliness in the wilderness, that Jesus was in a place that no one else had ever been. The loneliest and most desolate place that has ever existed on planet Earth. Jesus was all by himself from a human perspective. There's a sense in which hell is the ultimate God-forsaken place beside the cross. Described as a place where there will be gnashing of teeth. So what is that? And well, I would say it's a symbol of great suffering. Of the greatest sort of suffering. But Jesus was not entirely alone in the wilderness. He was not, there were no other people present there. But we're told here in Mark that the angels were ministering to him. And then comes John into the picture again. And after John had been arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe in the gospel. And I think we mentioned this last week, that, that faith and repentance basically sometimes are described as being the two sides to the same coin. That wherever there's faith, there's also repentance. Wherever there's repentance, true repentance, there's also faith. They go hand, go hand in hand. You can't have with one without the other. So as John is preaching repentance, you have to understand there's another sense in which he's pre preaching faith along with it. Because you can't have one without the other. Faith and repentance is probably the most simple description of the gospel that you can come up with. Two sides to the same coin as it's very often described. If you have one, you have the other. If you don't have one, you really don't have the other. Faith always leads to repentance. Repentance always leads to faith. J.C. Rowell writes these words. He said, the first followers of our Lord, these, these lowly fishermen, and you need to understand that they were not, it was not a profession that was highly regarded, respected, very well thought of. The first followers of our Lord were not the great of this world. They had neither riches, rank, nor power. In other words, according to the standards of the world, they were nothing people. Nothing people. 
no one that anyone would have a bit of interest in. And these were the ones that Jesus called to assist him in ministry and to carry his ministry on after he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. Obviously not the men, not the sort of people that anyone in their right mind would ever thought about calling to do what they are about to partake in. Paul will later write these words, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you, Paul's writing, not writing to the 12 disciples, he's talking about a whole different group of people. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, we have no reason for being prideful and puffed up and arrogant. Let me tell you a little bit. I just want to tell you a little bit about my story. There's some people here that really don't know me this morning. But I grew up in a moderately Christian home. I mean, we were members at First Baptist in Ocala, at least. And we went sometimes. A lot of times we didn't go. Sometimes we wouldn't go for months. And then we'd go every Sunday for two months, you know, just on and off again. It never really was central to our life. It was just something that you did. You know, I grew up in the South. Everybody went to church. There was hardly anybody didn't go to church. Something everybody did. But God came into my life in my 30s. I was in that wilderness. And he came to me in that wilderness. And he brought me to himself. And just let me tell you something. I can't tell you how many people said this to me when I became a believer. Just about everybody I knew as a matter of fact. You're the last person on the face of the earth I ever thought would become a believer. It would never happen. I had believers tell me, I prayed for you, I witnessed to you, one of my best friends. I witnessed to you and we did have a lot of, lot of discussions and I prayed for you, but I never thought for one minute that you would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Not once. He thought he was spinning in the wind. It 
Two things are required of every disciple of Christ. Repentance and faith. Where there is true faith, there is always repentance. Where there is true repentance, there is always faith. You simply cannot have one without the other. See, I stand before you this morning because I know something to be true, and that is this, and that is that God saved Keith. Keith did not save Keith at all. He changed me. He changed my understanding of just about everything. He changed what was important to me and what was not important to me. The presence of faith proves repentance. The presence of repentance proves faith. In man's fallen condition, it is very easy to fall into the trap of seeing the sins of other people very clearly, but at the same time seemingly to be blind to your own. It's part of our sinful nature. Part of our fallen condition. And in those circumstances, it's very easy for even church people to be very judgmental of other folks. We must get our own house in order before we'll be of much help to others who are trying to get their... The Greek word that's translated as hypocrite means by judging. One who pretends to be other than what he or she actually is. It's a common charge from unbelievers against believers. Because unfortunately, very often, they can see the sin in us even if we don't. <laughs> You follow me? What I would say is this, is very often we suffer from a condition <laughs> that is at some degree of spiritual blindness and then as we see the sins of other people very clearly while at the same time appear sometimes to be blind to our own. That leads to judgmentalism. It's only when you fall into that trap that you can actually be judgmental of other people. Jesus addresses this so-called sin blindness, blindness to our own sin, when he says this, he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye.
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Just think of the first followers of Jesus. How, <laughs> how unlikely a group of guys that would be called for such special purpose. No one would have ever thought it. I tell you what, it really was it's even interesting for me today because now, every now and then I'll bump into somebody that knew me before I became a believer, that knew me before I became a pastor, and they will say things to me like, you know what, Keith, you're the last person on the faith of the earth that we ever thought would become a Christian, more or less, even more, a pastor. I never thought I was really that bad, but I guess so. The point I'm trying to make here is this is God's the one who calls, God's the one who brings. And when he does it, very often he's not bringing or calling the people that people think are going to get called or He's full of surprises. And you know what the greatest surprise should be for every single one of us? Me. And I'm not talking about just me. I'm talking about you as me. It surprised the mess out of every single one of us that God wanted us. God loved us so much he did what he did to save me. And he had to done it, everything that he did, if he was only going to save me. But he did it. You're the proof of it. Sometimes I think the, the, the church has gotten off track in the means and the methods it sometimes uses to call forth leaders. I know guys, I have, I have personal relationships with men who were very highly sought after to plant churches, who were very high in assessment. who were hired to plant churches in New York City, who were hired to plant churches here, there, and yonder. I know people personally. And they tried and they failed. Even though from a worldly perspective, they had absolutely everything going for them. They had the personality. They had the deep faith. They had this, they had that. But sometimes I think the church forgets about what I call the God factor. We leave God out of the picture sometimes in the situations that we see or in the circumstances around us. 
What God expects from every one of us is absolute trust in him. And that includes trusting him to do things in us and through us that we cannot in any way, shape, or form do on our own. In other words, what he wants from us is to let go. To be ready to be used by him wherever, whenever, in whatever capacity he wishes to. Fishermen were not highly regarded. In a lot of places there really aren't today. Most people think it's kind of a lowly job for people to have. The same way in Jesus' day. Again, no one in their right mind would have started building his group with a bunch of fishermen. But what it says to us is God can use whoever he wants to, whenever he wants to, however he wants to. He's in control. What he expects from us is to be ready to be used. How, when, and where he wants to. But I think very often today the church has gotten off track in the manner in which it uses to call leadership. There was a guy that I got to know when I was uh, uh, going through some assessment and some, some that sort of thing myself that I still know. I bump into him at General Assembly almost every year and we talk with each other. He was a guy that our denomination put a lot of hope and money into to plant a church. I can't even remember where, where it was in Charlotte or Atlanta or somewhere. Lots of money, lots of resources, this, that, and the other, and it failed. It failed miserably. A lot of money went down the tube. But I always remember that when it comes to this particular passage. God calls who God calls. Eventually, he makes it clear to us. But he doesn't use the same standards that we do. I don't imagine that anyone had to tell Peter and Andrew and James and John and the rest of them that they didn't have what it took. They knew it. They probably had been, that idea had been pushed on them their whole lifetime. They're just fishermen. You don't count for anything. Anybody could do what you do. They knew they were not qualified. 
But nonetheless, they dropped everything in order to follow Jesus. They left their life to a large degree. But I would imagine that every one of them knew better than anybody else that they were completely, absolutely unworthy, un unable to do. To be the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. A few years later, on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter, James, and John would have another encounter with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. Post-resurrection. After he had been resurrected from the dead, Peter said to the other guys, you know, as far as their mindset was this, Jesus is gone, this whole thing is just falling apart, we just need to get back to doing business as usual before he came into the picture, so what's the logical thing to do? I'm going to go fishing. So they all went and they fished all night and they didn't catch anything. But at the break of day, guess what they saw? Jesus standing on the shore. He ate breakfast with them. And after breakfast, he said to Simon Peter three times, Do you love me more than these? Now, it's unclear exactly what the these are. Is it, is it the other disciples or is it the fish? Most people think it's the fish, and that's probably what it is. And Peter replied, yes, Lord. And what did Jesus say? He said, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In other words, you're not doing what you are supposed to be doing. You're not supposed to be fishing. You're supposed to be shepherding. In other words, no, you're no longer a fisherman. You are fishers of men. That is your profession. It should say this to us, that we all must be about our Father's business. I mean, some of us are called to be pastors, and some of us are called to be deacons, and some of us are ruling elders, and, you know, this, that, and the other. But we all have a calling, every one of us. As, as a Christian, we have a calling from God. A vocation. And we're all called to share our faith with other people. Whenever we're given the opportunity, whenever the circumstances warn it. To share our faith with people around us. To share our faith with other believers. It's one of the reasons why we're gathered together in a church. There's strength in numbers. You and I benefit a lot from the presence of each other. 
We're part of the body of Christ. Sometimes we wonder how, you know, when is my death going to come? How much longer have I got? And the older you get, maybe you think about it more often. The answer to that question, nobody has. No one in this room knows how much longer they're going to live. It may be way longer than what you think. It may be way shorter than what you think. But the fact of the matter is this, is we are here for a lot of reasons, but one of them is this, is to be about our Father's business. Not just our own. And what that means, at least to some degree, is sharing our faith, not just the words, but our life of faith. With other believers, because let me just tell you, we are all the greatest source of encouragement to each other, and we need it. We all need it. Every one of us needs to be encouraged. There's real strength that comes in numbers that we would not have if we were all by ourselves. But it also means sharing our faith with those who are still unbelieving. They're still out there in the wilderness. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And I just want to say to you, if you're visiting with us, as long as you have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and you know him as Lord and Savior, we want you to participate with us. Okay, it's a way for you to join in with the body this morning in a special way, very special sense. But if there's anybody here who doesn't fit into that category, I don't want you to feel like you're compelled to do it just because you're here. What I'm going to ask you to do is if you're not too sure about this Jesus guy and the things we talked about this morning, then please don't partake of it. It's not for you. And no one's going to say a word. The praise team is going to come this morning and... Lead us in a hymn to get us ready.